Welcome to Stroke FM for another amazing episode. Today we got something very special for you. This episode is called Blood in the Head is Bad. Insane in the Membrane. I'm here with... I'm Neha. I'm a second year neurology resident. Hey guys, this is Pav, senior neurology resident and aspiring stroke neurologist. And we are all at Toronto Neurology. Welcome. So this is one of those crazy things like you're you know you go to that code stroke and everything is looking like there's something bad going on obviously there's a stroke sometimes there's a bit of a clue right that there's we're dealing with this particular entity what do you guys think yeah look human i mean you go to a code stroke um you do your nih you're in the scanner and you're starting to see the uh, ct slices show up and your heart sinks when you see that blob of white um and you, you really feel for the patient. Um, and that's because uh, we don't really have great uh, options for these kind of patients. Yeah, that blob of white we're talking about, obviously the hyperdensity we see with hemorrhage inside a plain CT. Sometimes there's a bit of a clue from the beginning that this could be a hemorrhage. This doesn't always pan out. So I think, you know, I always kind of say, like, if we could tell by how the person looks, we wouldn't invent the scanners. Are there any clues, who, um, Dr. Kosravani, that you can think of? I mean, sometimes we see um, like profound hypertension. They're very hypertensive, systolics of 230, 240, uh, sometimes accompanying by, by a lot of the diastolic blood pressure as well. Now, the challenge, I guess, is that that could just be the chicken or the egg. Maybe that, that's exactly why they have bled and it's not, uh, it, it's not the actual ideology. And there is some interesting science coming out about that, that it's, that it's not always the brain trying to have a, uh, an exacerbated blood pressure response to improve perfusion, although that's what's classically thought what else do you, what about what about what else have you seen they have you seen patients be like very unwell when they come yeah so kind of scary looking I, i've had i've seen cases of ich actually in which we think that the prognosis is going to be really poor and in, fa- in fact that's what we're sort of predicting and preparing the family for and it's really interesting to see a few months later the blood sort of resorbs and patients are actually clinically kind of at their baseline as they were before and it doesn't always happen, but I do find it can be very challenging to actually predict prognoses in these patients. I mean, the other thing is, uh, as you were saying, Human, it's obviously not a hard or fast rule, but you kind of develop this instinct when you see these patients. They, they often look more agitated. Uh, they look uh, a lot sicker. Uh, sometimes they're vomiting. Um, uh, that's a huge clue, you know, when they're showing up out of the ambulance with a, a basin in their hands and they've been vomiting. Hmm. You start to really think, could this be hemorrhage? Um, and, uh, you know, the alarm bells start ringing. But I do find, though, and maybe it's just because I'm sort of junior here, that clinically sometimes it's hard to tell just before until you get the CT because they, they sort of present similarly or may present similarly in most ways to someone who has an ischemic infarct. Absolutely. They and might just have unilateral weakness or something, right? That's absolutely and, right. And that's actually why uh, we don't just give them aspirin at the door uh, before this, before the scan, like we do in MIs, right? Um, because it, it always can be a hemorrhage, and so we have to be careful. Yeah, it's pretty scary. Sometimes these patients could be quite sick, and then sometimes, I mean, the seizure part too. Sometimes they seize, or or they, um, and that we can't tell from that either. Like it's just a scary situation. That's why we always go to work with. I, I personally wear always brown pants because that way, if there's an accident, nobody can tell. <laughs> that's a key. It's a key attribute that I've learned from my my ICU time. Always wear brown pants, folks. That's a pro tip from Stroke FM. <laughs> um, I also thought maybe it would be a good idea just to, for the junior learners out there to just maybe quickly go through 
some of the basic etiologies of intracerebral hemorrhage. Um, so I guess when we look at the CT scan and we see the blood on the CT scan, which is uh, hyper dense, so it'll look white on CT, depending on the location, we can sort of um, sometimes kind of tell the etiology of the hemorrhage. It's like real estate, location, location, location. That's right. So uh, essentially for the deeper hemorrhages, uh, the main cause of those, and those are the hemorrhages in the lentiform nucleus or in the internal capsule, and those are often because of hypertension. So in people who have a history of hypertension um, can come up, can come in with those types of hemorrhages. Uh, whereas the more superficial or lobar hemorrhages are often because of amyloid angiopathy. And those are kind of the big things to think about for junior people when you see intracerebral hemorrhages. Is it deep or is it lobar? And right. that gives us some clues. Yeah, these are these are part of the bigger category path of primary intracerebral hemorrhage. hemorrhage. That's right. Number one, numero uno category. And then you get into these like uh, secondary causes. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, hypertension, amyloid, definitely very common causes. But we shouldn't forget to think about uh, other things like cavernomas, tumors. Um, and another big category actually is, was this an ischemic infarct that bled? And I think that's, uh, you know, another category that sometimes is not so clear initially. Uh, but definitely has to be at the back of our minds. Yeah, going back to Nail's point, the, the appearance of the infarct, sorry, the appearance of the hemorrhage with surrounding edema, and sometimes other types of nuances about how that hemorrhage looks, especially if it doesn't fit, for example, a basal ganglia hypertensive hemorrhage or a lobar frontal um, amyloid type hemorrhage. Uh, you know, certainly if it has a wedge appearance to it, for example, just to pick a basic situation with hemorrhage within it, then, Pav, as you said, you think about like this was actually a stroke that then converted to hemorrhage. Right. And yeah, and the other one that we tend to see sometimes is coagulopathic bleed, right? So what about that? Right. So, I mean, look, uh, patients are on uh, anticoagulation uh, a lot nowadays, right? Uh, now with the advent of the DOAX, a lot of people are on apixaban, rivaroxaban, etc. And uh, that definitely has to be uh, one of the things we think of, and it uh, shows the importance of history uh, because uh, in the emergent situation, we have to reverse uh, these agents, um, even though we know we don't have great options for, for some of them. Yeah, sometimes the blood works occluded that. So, for example, if you see like a PTT elevation, that's something you expect with someone who's on the bigger trend. But the trouble is that it does not correlate with how anticoagulated they are. And I think it can be elevated for about two weeks. Right. And, uh, you know, technically there's some experimental stuff of the factor 10 assays and whatnot, but we don't have them available clinically. So, we're relying a lot on our history, really, and, and some of these clues on the labs. Yeah, and I think a pixaban and on the, you know, the, other, the other direct oral anticoagulants that are 10A inhibitors, um, they will have an INR elevation. But again, the INR is not going to tell you how, how thin their blood is. So that doesn't help. So going back, so these patients come in, they look super sick, they're very hypertensive, sometimes they're vomiting, they may seize. Um, just going back to like before, again, if these patients are sick, what do you what do, you do they have? They go in there and the patient looks terrible. Can you call for help? What's your approach? Absolutely. So I think I've realized, like, especially the more I've done a residency, like, we really shouldn't be afraid to ask help. And I've realized more and more now when I have sick patients, especially if they're vitally unstable, I go to the eMERGE doc who's on and I ask for help. And I think that's completely reasonable. Um, and they're always willing to sort of help us out there. Um, if, they're, if the ABCs are controlled and I'm not concerned from that perspective, then I'll go ahead with the stroke management stuff. We'll get the CT 
uh, the biggest thing for us is really controlling that blood pressure and keeping it below 140 over 90. Yeah so, so, yeah, so that's a good place to start. Like the patient looks super sick in the resuscitation area where the strokes come. Before we go to scan, you know, we don't know yet it's a hemorrhage, but what are some of the drugs you want to carry with us uh, in case we get into trouble? I mean, one of the things that Neha, you just said is like, you have to make a judgment call if you have to get them to be, for example, intubated before even you go to the scanner, right? Absolutely. So she, if they, yeah. She, she brings up a good point, right? Because ABC, right? And um, you also just talked about medications. And, you know, when, when I see uh, that ICH show up on the scan, I'm usually turning around and asking for Zofran or, or another antiemetic because uh, these patients can start vomiting. They can lose their airway really quickly. And I think the other important point is sometimes you may have to just slow down for a minute and say, is it safe to bring this patient to the scanner? Because uh, I've definitely been in uh, cold stroke situations, even with uh, human, where we've had to intubate the patient uh, before taking them to the scanner. Because the last place you want to be intubating that patient is when they're halfway in a scanner. Exactly, or a code blue in the scanner. We don't like that. Um, yeah, so that's one. I think so, but it's sometimes hard to make a judgment call if they're sick right off the bat to intubate them or not. And we're not advocating that, you know, like a, an antiemetic is going to save their life. But def definitely if you're going to send them to the scanner and you haven't intubated them, then um, using uh, an antiemetic is not a bad idea because it just might get you enough time to get them back to the recess bay for intubation. And we like sort of Maxran for that because it has some gastric empty properties beyond, for example, ondansetron. Just a small minor point. Great. Wow. Learned something new. Yeah, me too. So, and then a couple of other interesting things is, you know, uh, secondary brain injury is really important. So if they're not overtly seizing, I think probably all patients like this, it's not a bad idea to, you know, go with antihypertensives. You know, again, we don't know what they have, but so TPA may come along with us for these codes. But uh, certainly when you see these very systolic, very elevated systolic blood pressures, what is your drug of choice? What else could you use? Right. So, I mean, uh, my hand's always reaching for labetalol, of course, if their heart rate can take it, which usually it can. Um, it's kind of my go-to. Uh, but uh, there's always a, a few in our kind of arsenal. What have you used, Neha? I also just go to labetalol, to be honest. And typically at the beginning, especially like after the patient has their CT and is stabilized or if they're admitted to ICU or increased monitored settings, um, I usually start labetalol infusion mm -hmm. um, for the first little part of their admission. Right. So I've had some good experience with uh, other antihypertensives uh, like IV and allopril. Uh, it's quite effective. Um, and uh, hydralazine. But there are some caveats to hydralazine. Isn't that right, Human? Well, sometimes it drops the blood pressure pretty drastically. But I think the reason is that most stroke patients are intravascularly dry. And so if you were to give them a bit of fluid, actually, during the initial uh, resuscitation, they will paradoxically more even keel respond to that hydralazine. Right. Yes. I, I learned that firsthand from you, actually, and seen it work well. Yeah. And so hydralazine comes in about 20 milligrams per cc. So the trick we use is we... Take a saline flush, eject one cc out, so you now have nine cc's of saline in your flush. You must take a drug label and label that as hydralazine. And then you uh, take back one cc of the uh, hydralazine from the vial, which is 20 milligrams per cc. But if you drop that one cc into nine cc's of your saline flush, you now have two milligrams per cc. And you can give hydralazine like four milligram push or a six milligram push. So you can kind of see what they do with four to six milligrams before you give them like 10 IV. And it's those pushes of 10 that really drop their blood pressure. Uh, Labetalol comes in five milligrams per cc. And so again, 
If they're elderly and frail, you may just want to give them five. If you're more, if you think they're more hemodynamically compensated, then you can give like 10, 10 milligrams, which would be two cc's. Uh, you know, Human, you just talked a lot about uh, how to mix hydralazine. And I think an important point, kind of a practical point is, uh, I, I've certainly over the last year and a half become uh, more hands-on during code strokes and getting the vials from the nurse and mixing my own medications. I find that uh, it, it increases efficiency. You're helping out the nurses and more, more things can be done at the same time. Uh, so I think uh, that's something to think about. Yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it gets us right in there. So, so now we're in the scanner, I guess, and we've maybe given some fluid, maybe we've given some antihypertensive. I mean, at the end of the day, even if you don't know if it's a hemorrhage or, or ischemia, when you have a systolic of 230, you better probably bring that down. So it's not unreasonable to give some sort of antihypertensive as you're rolling to the scanner. In the scanner, not a bad idea to put everybody on some sort of oxygen supplementation. So nasal prongs, probably best in these patients in case they do vomit. Uh, as they're lying flat, nothing wrong with four to six liters of uh, nasal prong O2 just during that initial CT run. And then the CT is done and we see that white stuff and then we're like, damn. On one hand, we're like, great, it's not a TPA case. I mean, we love giving TPA, but it is a hard decision to make because as we'll talk about in another episode, it is, uh, you, have to make a, you have to make a big decision with TPA in a very short amount of time. And when there's a hemorrhage, you know that you're not giving TPA, right? That's right. No TPA for bleeds, guys. That was a good point, eh? So pro tip again. Pav, can you just outline that in more clear terms? Yes. So when you see the blood, do not give the TPA. Excellent. Don't give the juice. This is one of those instances. Right. So then what so now once you get that CT and you see the blood, what what should you do next? Is there another imaging modality we should be doing right after that? Yeah, so I definitely would want to take a look at the vessels. And I think as a start, we'd get the CT and usually we do CT and CTA just as part of the code stroke protocol. But I think it would be important to pay particular attention to the CTA to look at the vessels. And then you can do more detailed vessel imaging um, as the patient's admitted kind of in the coming days, I find. Is what That's we typically right. Do. Yeah, yeah, we're talking about now this, uh, this uh, thing called the spot sign. But before we go there, let's talk about uh, on the plane CT, we have the hemorrhage, we have some idea of the sense of the volume, and there's this nerdy score, nerding out now with the uh, ICH score. What does that tell us? Like, is it useful? Do you guys use it, actually? Yeah, actually, I find it's really handy. Um, so the ICH score, and actually, um, there's a really good, like, MD-Calc, if you just Google it, and you can just do MD, look up MD-Calc ICH score, and it's really great for just quickly calculating it. And it tells you the prognosis as well on, or on that and the, I guess, the uh, percent mortality is what it gives you. Uh, there's five components to the ICH score. So the first is basically your Glasgow Coma Scale uh, score. The second is age. So the point you get is if the age is above 80. The third is the ICH volume. So if it's above 30 cc's, then you get points for that. Um, the the third, or sorry, the fourth is the presence of intraventricular hemorrhage, which would give a point. Um, and then the final and fifth po uh, points are for infratentorial origin of the hemorrhage. And so based on that score, it tells the percent mortality. However, sometimes what we've found, I think, clinically through these cases is it's not always accurate. And we have to be very careful when we're talking to patients and their families about this mortality percent, because a lot of the times, or I've, I've even found, and I think I talked about this earlier, you can have patients that have a high mortality percentage and then the blood sort of resorbs and it's really amazing. Like they clinically go back to their baseline. It doesn't always happen, but it, it can. So, and, yeah. You know, when you think more about this ICH score, it's actually 
not that hard to remember because it's actually quite intuitive, right? I mean, when you think about it, the older you are, the less resilient you are to recover from injury. You know, the, the posterior fossa is a very tight, confined space. So you can imagine that even a small amount of blood is going to cause a lot of problems. And then interventricular hemorrhage, that's going to block outflow of CSF. You're going to get hydrocephalus. That's going to cause problems. And GCS makes sense. The lower your GCS, probably the worse you're doing clinically. So it's actually not that hard to remember. And, you know, it can help you guide discussion, I think, and help you prepare families for what may be coming in the days uh, to come. But, uh, but as you said, it's, it shouldn't be, you know, used to make decisions uh, on the spot uh, about prognosis and things like that. Yeah, it's always important to follow a patient over time and see if things improve as well and kind of reassess things as we go, for sure. Yeah, and, and um, what about how to calculate that? So a couple of those numbers are hard to know. The infantentorial one is not intuitive, and the IVH, sometimes people forget. How do you calculate it? So it has to do with the measurement, right? Is it hard? Do you, do you need a radiologist or what? So it's actually calculating volume is uh, not too hard at all. I mean, we already kind of know what the uh, thickness of our slices are on uh, the CT scan. So, you know, we start by going through how many slices the blood we see. Uh, and then we just measure the um, horizontal and vertical diameter. And uh, there's three numbers. Multiply them together and you get your volume. No rocket science there, eh, Pav? No. Length times width times height. That's right. goes back to, I don't know what grade, but mm-hmm. uh, anyway. I keep telling people that I'm not good at math anymore, but I just uh, lied because I was actually not very good at math, but I became good at math. But anyway, long story. Not good with numbers. Didn't you have a physics degree, human? Yes, but that was after a lot of hardship. <laughs> 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 Excellent. Uh-huh. That's pretty cool. So, uh, right. So we, now, we, now we, we finished the plain CT. We got that vessel imaging that Neha was talking about. And then, and then sometimes you see something uh, in the vessel imaging that is called the spot sign. Do you know what that is? And can you tell us a little bit about that? So, you know, we, we look for, as the name kind of describes, this bright spot that uh, looks brighter than the rest of the contrast we see on the scan. And, you know, what we believe it to be is active extravasation of blood. Um, that being said, Human, I, I think there's recently been some controversy around uh, the spot sign. Oh, controversy. What, do you know much about that? What do they say? So, you know... I, a few years ago, when, when the spot sign was kind of described, it was the hot thing. They wanted CTAs on all of these patients with ICH. Uh, but now they're, they're starting to say that maybe it's not as predictive of uh, prognosis Very and expansion of the hematoma, and that there's actually different types of spot signs. Uh, so I think uh, there is some controversy and, um, you know, that it, it needs some more deep thought. Right. There are definitely spot sign mimics, which is probably like outside the scope of this particular podcast. But Essentially, all it means is that there's active contrast extravasation within the hematoma, and it can, as you said, be linear or serpiginous. Serpiginous. That's right. Yeah. You got Snake-like it. <laughs> or linear. Sometimes it's at the margin. Sometimes it's multiple. But the idea, as you said, just to be clear, is that it, it was supposed to be predictive of hematoma expansion in kind of the next four to six hours. So if you had an ICH with a spot sign, then you would... Um, keep that patient for example if they're going to be like if they're coming to your stroke center and you may have to be repatriating to another site this is someone who'd want to keep because the risk of deterioration on route over the next few hours may be quite bad and the other thing was that um from a prognostic perspective and where do you put that patient again most of these patients should go to some form of icu but the ones with a spot sign should definitely go to an icu uh, but but yes there might be more information coming on that so stay tuned um so right so uh 
we, you know, there are a lot of good examples out there about uh, looking at different types of locations, like Nea was talking about, uh, of how you can tell from the types of pictures of what the type of hemorrhage is. But not always, I guess, right? Because not all, for example, basal ganglia hemorrhages uh, in someone who is elderly with hypertension may be from hypertension, right? So it turns out that, like, that could be up to, like, 2 to 4% of people may have actually a lesion. And it could be other things like... Uh, that's right. I mean, uh, you have to think about cavernomas, AVMs, other sort of vascular malformations. Uh, certainly possible in the basal ganglia, uh, and and even the brainstem. Uh, so uh, definitely food for thought. Yeah, and the other thing to note as well is that um, often we, and a lot of the times actually, even with vessel imaging early on, we actually won't be able to see what's underneath the blood until a few months later. So um, a lot of the times with these patients, the diagnoses of AVMs or tumors are actually made months after the initial presentation for that reason, because then mm -hmm. the blood will resorb and then we see what was underneath it. Yeah. And what modality would be used then? Like what, what have you seen used in kind of around that two to three month timeline? I, I thought it was typically a CT, CTA, mm -hmm. or you can do MRI, MRA as well. Yeah, it very much that. depends on resources at, yeah. at your local shop. But yeah, in our shop, it's MRI. On other places, it might be a CT, CTA. Um, it's just to look for an underlying lesion. Uh, and always just, by the way, with a CTA, there is something called a post-contrast study. And so sometimes, yeah, if you see a mass enhancing, once the hematoma is resorbed on a post-contrast CT, that would be hypothesis generating. But yeah, typically at our place, it's an MRI. Uh, for better or for worse. But yeah, early on, not very useful. Um, it's interesting to see actually how there's regional differences because our friends south of the border uh, routinely do uh, DSAs uh, for hemorrhage patients uh, to look for vascular lesions, which, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure what the evidence behind uh, doing that is, but uh, certainly, um, you know, it's something that can be considered when you have a high enough suspicion uh, for an underlying lesion. Right. This is, we'll put links in the show notes, but uh, me and a colleague who used to work here now, but now is uh, uh, sort of the top guy in radiology, one of the top guys in neuroradiology and radiology, now at Ottawa, Dr. Richard Aviv, we had a little paper and we talked about sort of, and he's one of the actual discoverers of this spot sign thing, uh, where we talked about what is the algorithm you should pursue. It kind of goes back to even, even the thinking behind, for example, what you do with other types of hemorrhages that you can consider. For example, the classic one is like a thunderclap headache where you, outside of like 24 hours, you'd want to do an LP because you may miss hemorrhage on a, uh, on a plain CT. But for this type of thing, our, our algorithm suggested that if you have a symptomatic ICH with or without intraventricular hemorrhage, that you should rule out a vascular region by doing, um, uh, you know, a CTA. And in some places, yeah, that could be a, di that could be a digital subtraction angiography or, or, um, or, or, or essentially an angiogram. If they have a spot sign, they should probably go to the ICU, neurosurgical consult for these patients. By the way, do you, Neha, do you consult neurosurgery for these at all times? I think the protocol actually at our hospital is that we do, for all ICH, consult neurosurgery. And uh, that's what I've been taught. It's not always a bad idea, exactly. And yeah. If you don't have neurosurgery at your shop, you can call out using your local uh, emergency um, land, sorry, not land, but telephone communication system where you get consultations by another service that can see the images. Yeah, it's always a good idea. It, it truly is because uh, the field is rapidly changing, right? I mean, uh, even a year ago or two years ago, a large proportion of these would be non-surgical cases. But recently, there has been evidence for some superficial lobar bleeds uh, for evacuation. Hmm. Um, and I think with the growing field of interventional uh, neuroradiology and neurosurgery, 
that, uh, you know, in the next five, 10 years, we may have some interventional treatments for these patients. So uh, it's always good to consult our colleagues. Yeah. And I just want to add to what I was saying before. I think uh, my initial thought when I started residency is why do we always have to call neurosurgery for these ICH? And I think what I found is, uh, I think the at least the protocol that we're taught is to always call them. And um, because I guess you just never know. And I think I used to think that if a patient was clinically pretty stable and I was able to manage the blood pressure and it was a small hemorrhage, why would we still call them? But we, we typically still do. Yeah, you probably yeah. have some war stories, right, of somebody who looked okay and then a few hours later by morning handover, they actually weren't okay. Yeah, and that yeah. can happen for exactly. sure, which is why it's important to, I guess, always have them involved early on. Yeah, both of your points was good. So if the CTA is negative at the initial um hemorrhage, then at least you know you don't have a vascular malformation and you know that you don't have a spot sign. Um, these people, um, everybody should go for some form of repeat scan within 24 hours for sure. If they have a spot sign, neurosurgery typically actually is the one to usually point out to us that it should be done in four to six hours, you know, six to 12 hours at the latest. But generally, it'll say something like four to six hours to repeat the scan in a high-risk lesion, especially, for example, if there's intraventricular hemorrhage or early signs of hydro for which they are not going to put an EVD, they will ask for a repeat scan. And um, as you guys were pointing out, like, yeah, you need, sometimes in certain cases, um, you may want to do an MRI early if there was something suspicious uh, suggesting a, a plausible cause of like a cavernoma or a tumor. Um, what about, like, have you guys ever had a case where it's a young person with ICH, not, not in the ventricles typically, um, without... Um, significant amount of blood and nothing on the CTA. What about those cases? What do you think should happen there? Because this is, a, this is an interesting uh, category of people. That's right. So, I mean, in those kind of patients, uh, you, you really should be thinking about uh, a DSA, I think, to, to look for some of these lesions that may not be apparent on a CTA because it's not sensitive, sensitive enough. Uh, but uh, I think the DSA is warranted. Yeah, this digital subtraction angiography is basically like a digital angiogram. It's basically a cerebral angiogram. So cath lab for the head, right? right. And um, yeah, and, and especially again in, in, in weird hemorrhages that are non-hypertensive. But I think going back to what you said, Pav, about the ischemic strokes, never forget to think about a secondary conversion, secondary hemorrhagic transformation of an ischemic stroke as an underlying cause. So with that, we go to the, the most controversial topic, um, for which there are guidelines what to do, but it is controversial still, and we don't always know. And different doctors have different beliefs, which is blood pressure. What do we do there? What's the, what, is it, what does the guideline say right now for our, our Canadian stroke guidelines, for example? Well, to keep the blood pressure under 140 over 90 is what we do for these patients. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it appears that there is no harm. There's several studies that didn't show benefit, but the negative, the, the other side of the coin was that there wasn't significant harm by reducing the blood pressure. No one had increased amounts of stroke or infarction or ischemia uh, with this. And so generally, yeah, we go with aggressive blood pressure management, um, which requires uh, basically the ICU. Right. And uh, it's, it's funny that you mentioned how controversial this is. When I started residency, um, the, the recommendations were sometimes all over the place. I mean, I, I remember sometimes it was uh, less than 160 systolic. And then sometimes it was less than 180. But I think now more and more we're becoming more consistent with our targets of less than 140 and trying to achieve that as soon as possible, uh, which, uh, Human, you bring up another great point of the ICU where we're able to monitor them 
uh, you know, with an art line uh, and uh, and continuous infusions of antihypertensives. Right. Yeah, that's a, that's a that's an excellent point. Yeah. So that's about it. There, there is probably somewhere in there some form of U-shaped distribution that often there is with blood pressure. Too low is bad. Too high is bad. And somewhere in the middle is just right. But in general, we've settled down on less than 140 of systolic because it doesn't appear to be, um, you know, significant harm for most patients uh, with, with that target. And so, so one of the questions that commonly comes up is when do you do that? And yeah, we do it early, uh, especially for those that have a spot sign. Again, we'll see where the data shakes out on that spot sign. But in general, if we think there's active contrast extravasation, we're pretty quick in getting that blood pressure down. Yeah, so that's, those are some of the cool thoughts. Any other parting thoughts, guys? Well, I think before we leave, we should, as promised, talk about warfarin. Right. Warfarin. Yes. So that one's the one that has an actual uh, reversal agent uh, that we can give. Right. So I can think of one right away, vitamin K. And uh, prothrombin uh, concentrate, basically. So like PCC. Octoplex. Yeah, yeah. Octoplex. Give Octoplex. Octoplex. Give that juice. And uh, the thing that they just pointed out is you have to give vitamin K because if you don't, the INR will once again rebound and become the patient will become unanticoagulated. So that that's an important uh, thing that you give octoplex and you give vitamin K. There are reversal agents coming for the DOAX. Uh, it might be a bit of a niche topic to get into because everyone's shop is different. Uh, the data even behind that is not fantastic yet, but right now we just stick to kind of reversing warfarin. Um, tranexamic acid is another interesting drug. No harm. Uh, with it, uh, no one kind of clots with it or has increased venous thromboembolic uh, issues. You know, it's been studied in the non-vitamin K antagonist leads, but that's another one that's worth kind of considering. And uh, that's that's pretty much it, I think. Just as a basic overview of ICH for you guys who might be starting your stroke rotation. Uh, hopefully, that made you a little bit less scared. What do you guys think? Was that scary? It's a little bit scary. Ah, uh, it's a little bit scary. But you know what? Some parting thoughts. When you see that uh, blob of white, uh, don't freak out. Keep calm, but uh, get that blood pressure down. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. And, and call the eMERGE doc if you need help. I would say, like, just don't be afraid to ask for help if you need it, especially when you're more junior. Awesome. We will see you next time and hear from you, hopefully, uh, uh, through our communication pathways about this episode and other episodes, and hopefully join us again on Stroke FM. Pat, signing off. Neha, signing off. Neha, signing off.